Good morning, everybody. I'm on, yes, we're live. Well, it's been an interesting weekend. I'll give you that. Uh, so I got sick on Friday evening with a pretty bad migraine and, and then uh, got over that, thankfully. Thank the Lord. But I had more time to sort of recoup and prepare yesterday. I could use the ex excuse I'm still recuperating so I can't do stuff around the house, you know. Um, I'm just kidding, I didn't really use that excuse. I really was recuperating, but I had more time to study, which is good. And then I preached at Miracle Hill, <clears throat> Miracle Hill this morning. That's what I was studying for. And then this morning about six something, I don't know what time it was, I got the message that Chris was sick. And so, hey, I already have material, so who better to preach than me, right? So here we are. Um, so I'm not complaining, I'm just saying that's, it's been an interesting morning and an interesting weekend, so. Um, but yeah, it's, you know, uh, someone mentioned in the text chain or whatever it was I was looking at this morning that, um, you know, Satan does really oppose us. Satan is real. He opposes the saints. And uh, I don't think it's coincidental when things like this happen. You have this, you know, everyone's been relatively well and all of a sudden, bam, everybody's sick. Um, you know, I don't know for sure, but it doesn't surprise me if Satan's afoot in these things. So it shouldn't surprise any of us, right? So VBS coming. Um, this is a big thing, you know. Um, so anyways, so the Lord is with us, the Lord reigns, and uh, we can have confidence in that, that if his word is proclaimed um, and uh, people hear the good news, then that's something to be thankful for, um, no matter what the circumstances attending that would be. So why don't we pray um, and pray that the Lord will be with us and with me. I'm tired, <laughs> um, but uh, that the Lord will be with us this morning. Father, your word is precious to us. You are precious to us because... Lord, apart from you, we are um, just totally lost, Lord. We have no direction, no hope, nothing, uh, certainly no forgiveness of sins. But through your Son, the Lord Jesus, we have come to be adopted into your family, to belong to you uh, through faith, Lord, not of any works that we can produce, Lord, to merit anything before you, but just totally free grace. And so, Lord, we praise you for abounding in love toward us, for pouring out your Holy Spirit in our hearts so we can call out to you as Father and know that you are with us and walk, uh, walk with us anytime we go through the fire. Lord, you are there with us as you say in your word. Um, you will never leave or forsake us. It doesn't mean that we're excused from hardship or any of that, Lord, but you will certainly never um, leave us alone in those things, Lord. Um, we pray again for our brother Chris so you, that you will heal him completely. Thank you that he's already starting to feel a bit better, according to what he said uh, earlier. And uh, Lord, that you would just bring him completely out of this, we pray. And for all the others who are sick, I don't know all the families and individuals who are sick right now, but Lord, I pray that you would heal them. And that, um, Lord, you'll be with us with this VBS coming up. Um, Lord, it's not just something we do because we feel like we have to. It's, a, it's an outreach with your gospel, with your good news to children at a, at a level that they can understand and, understand and appreciate. And Lord, we ask you to be in that with power and just open these children's hearts as they hear about the good news proclaimed through the Pilgrim's Progress and um, as it's been used over so many hundreds of years now to bless people, we pray that you will use it again to bless um, these children and bringing them to, uh, to a knowledge of the truth, maybe for the first time, uh, or Lord, to a deeper understanding of what you are calling them to as disciples of, of you. Um, and Lord, be with us this morning as we hear from your word. Bless it. Speak to our hearts. Give us what we need, Lord. Um, you know what we need to hear. Lord, speak to us uh, with those things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, so most of you are probably aware that with Miracle Hill, <clears throat> excuse me, with the men at Miracle Hill, the rescue mission, we've been going through the Gospel of Mark. Um, we just 
pick up where the other person left off. So uh, we've just been going through uh, little by little, piece by piece. We're now in chapter six. And uh, so that's what I'm going to preach about this morning because this is the material I had. And I think uh, hey, that's the material the Lord has for us too this morning because that's what I have. So this is what you get. So, uh, so we're going to turn, if you would, to Mark chapter six. Um, and uh, just going to give just a, just a very brief um, background here for this passage. Uh, we're in Mark chapter 6, verse 30. Um, so the gospel of Mark is, is interesting as a gospel because it's, it's quite different from, well, certainly different from John. All of the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are different from John. But it's even different from some of the other, uh, the other two, I should say, synoptic gospels. It's different in the sense that it's very fast-paced. It's almost like everything is just happening, bam, 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 uh, one scene to the next. It's different in that, though it's a shorter gospel, than say Matthew, it contains more extended material on given passages most of the time. So whereas Matthew includes a total amount, a greater total amount of information, the gospel's longer, Gospel of Matthew and Luke, Mark will give us longer, uh, more uh, information in a given section. Um, another way it's, it's different is that Mark will talk about the teaching and preaching of Jesus often, uh, and the dis- disciples as well, as they go out and teach and preach. But he doesn't actually record the teaching and preaching itself. He summarizes sometimes, but doesn't really give us extended portions of teaching. Whereas you have, for example, Matthew, the Sermon on the Mount, famously, and you have lots of parables in Luke. Uh, Math- uh, Mark is not quite like that. And for that reason, Mark has sometimes been kind of pushed to the side as, and Steve's talked about this some, but sort of pushed to the side as, well, you basically have Mark and Matthew, and and in Luke, and you know, so why do you really need Mark? Well, we do need Mark. God gave us Mark for a reason. Um, Mark has a certain, you know, focus um, and a certain artistry to it, uh, the way that Mark put the gospel together, that is worth looking at for its own sake. Um, so let's just read the passage first. Uh, Luke chapter, I'm sorry, Mark, sorry, Mark chapter six, starting in verse 30, and we're going to read through verses, uh, verse 44. The apostles gathered together with Jesus, and they reported to him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a secluded place and rest a while. For there were many people coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat. They went away in the boat to a secluded place by themselves. The people saw them going, and many recognized them and ran there together on foot from all the cities and got there ahead of them. When Jesus went ashore, he saw a large crowd and and he felt compassion for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. When it was already quite late, his disciples came to him and said, this place is desolate and it is already quite late. Send them away so that they may go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, shall we go and spend 200 denarii on bread and give them something to eat? And he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go look. And when they found out, they said, five and two fish. And he commanded them all to sit down by groups on the green grass. They sat down in groups of hundreds and of fifties. And he took the five loaves and the two fish. And looking up toward heaven, he blessed the food and broke the loaves. And he kept giving them to the disciples to set before them. And he divided up the two fish among them all. They all ate and were satisfied. And they picked up 12 full baskets of the broken pieces and also of the fish. There were 5,000 men who ate the loaves. It's a very familiar passage, uh, a very 
famous passage, even among the world, most people know, okay, Jesus did miracles, and one of them was feeding the 5,000 or feeding the multitude. They might not know that it was 5,000 or more, but he fed a lot of people with a little bit, right? And people know that. So it's a very, very common, you know, popular passage, um, but a very important passage. So important, in fact, that it's the only miracle that all four of the gospel writers record, the only one. So that kind of tells you something. They thought it was important enough to, re- all of them would, would record it. Um, so the Holy Spirit's maybe trying to tell us something here. This is an important, an important thing. Um, what I like to do is just go through with some explanation and then come back with some application uh, afterward. But let's, let's start looking at verse 30. Um, the apostles gathered together with Jesus and they reported to him all that they had done and taught. So earlier in the chapter, if you just, well, I have to flip over, maybe it's on your page, but early in the chapter, chapter six, um, starting in verse seven, Jesus commissions the apostles, he sends them out. Um, and he summoned the 12 and began to send them out in pairs. And he gave them authority over the unclean spirits and he instructed them that they should take nothing, etc. And as you read on, it, the passage tells us in verse 12 what this sending out actually entailed. What were they doing? What were these 12 going in pairs actually doing and saying? It says, they went out and preached that men should repent. And they were casting out many demons and were anointing with oil many sick people and healing them. Now, when we read this, this shouldn't really surprise us because this is what Jesus had been doing, right? When you read about the first part in Mark where it talks about what Jesus is is preaching, what is his message? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, right? Or kingdom of God is at hand. And believe in the gospel. That's his message. That's what he's telling people. Um, And he's, of course, going around healing the sick, casting out demons. So it shouldn't surprise us that there's nothing novel to what the apostles are doing. Now, the word apostle just means those sent out. At this point, it's probably not a technical term for the 12. It becomes that, of course, over time, especially with the Great Commission. You know, he's commissioned these particular 12 to go out, or the 11 at that point, adding Matthias. But he's commissioned them specifically with this task. But at this point, it's more of a, this is their mission. They're sent out um, to do these specific things that God tells, or Jesus tells them to do. Um, so, It's important to know that firstly, but secondly, as I've already said, this is just Jesus' message and and mission to preach the gospel, to, you know, to uh, cleanse, uh, cleanse people of demons and to heal folks. Um, So this is what they are to do as well. They weren't to be creative. You know, it's not like the apostles get to fill in the gaps and kind of go their own way and be creative in their ministry. No, Jesus, they're going with Jesus' authority behind them. You know, when they go and do these things, it's not their own authority, right? They're pointing to Jesus. They're saying, yeah, we're doing these things, but we're doing them because this guy, Jesus of Nazareth, has told us to come to you and do these things, to preach this good news, this gospel, and to heal and to um, cleanse people of, of, uh, of demon possession, cast out demons. So they're not to be creative. It's not their own authority. And he said to them, going on in the text, come away by yourselves to a secluded place and rest a while. For there were many people coming and going and they did not even have time to eat. They went away in the boat to a secluded uh, place by themselves. Jesus knows, he's very realistic, (laughs) that these men are men, right? And that they get tired because they're men. Jesus himself is a man and gets tired. We read about him, of course, being asleep in the boat. We read about him going off by himself, often to pray, of course, but to be by himself to sort of you know, get his mind right, as it were, to pray to the Father, to rest, to get in the mental space that he needs to be in. That's just what it takes, right? I mean, as human beings, we wear out. Um, 
That's just the nature of being human. And Jesus is realistic about this. He sees the disciples come back, the apostles come back, and he sees that, hey, they need rest. As excited as, excited as they may be, as I'm sure they were, to report, you know, hey, we cast out demons from this person. Hey, this person had this withered hand and we healed them. Or, hey, we told this person to repent, and he actually repented, you know? And I'm sure they came back with all kinds of excitement, and they were reporting these things to Jesus. But Jesus sees in them, hey, they need to rest. And he actually commands them to come away by themselves to a secluded place and rest. Um, because obviously serving and ministering to people in their spiritual, their physical needs is often very challenging in just the, the, the mental work, the physical work that goes beyond, behind it, but also the fact that it's often thankless. You know, you, you do these things for people and they may or may not turn around and, and give you any sort of level of thanks. And, and that's just how it is. And Jesus knows that. Um, so the disciples need this. They need time to rest. They need time to refocus. They need time to refuel because they had, hadn't, even, hadn't even had time to sit down and eat a meal. I mean, that's how crowded they were with, with people, you know, uh, people around them. Um, they couldn't even sit down to eat. I mean, this is quite a, quite a scene, you know. These guys go out into the surrounding villages and countryside and they start telling people, hey, yes, we're sent out by Jesus. Oh, Jesus, we know him. What are you sent out to tell us or do? You know, and they start doing and saying what they did. And people are gathering around. People, there's a stir. There's a commotion. Jesus was quite a popular guy, right? And it's, of course, by extension, his, his uh, disciples, because they have his authority, are, are popular as well. Um, and so we aren't told exactly how many people respond to the apostles' message of repentance. Um, but it turns out that people actually, of course, liked being healed of disease and set free from demonic oppression. So they draw these large crowds. And this explains why, in the scene that follows, there are all these people coming to where Jesus was. It, in, par in part explains it, because the, the apostles, the, the disciples had gone out and, and ministered and I'm sure they were pointing people to Jesus as they did so. And so if you were, let's say, healed of a, a disease and you have these guys telling you, yes, we're, we're, we've come to you in the name of Jesus to do these things. And then you hear, yeah, Jesus, he's, he's right over here in this area. Wouldn't you maybe want to go meet Jesus <laughs> or hear what he has to say for himself? You know, I imagine there's some of that going on. So people are flocking to where Jesus is um, for various reasons. But there are these large crowds coming to, uh, to Jesus and coming to where the apostles were gathering around Jesus, Jesus himself. And the people saw them going, and many recognized them and ran there together on, on foot from all the cities and got there ahead of them. Um, again, we can kind of see that when it says that they recognized them, it's not just Jesus. They didn't recognize just Jesus. They recognized them. That tells us that the apostles are in part responsible for these people coming uh, to be where Jesus was because, hey, they were recognized. They had been out and about in the, in, the, in the towns and villages and countryside, and they're recognized by these people. So uh, Jesus and the apostles are recognized as they try to flee. <laughs> they're trying to go on a little mini vacation, right? And it doesn't work out so well. Um, whether or not the crowds understood that Jesus and his followers were trying to get away for a little rest. Um, it doesn't say in the text, but either way, they se seemingly, didn't care, seemingly didn't care because they somehow anticipate that Jesus is heading across this way, probably not all the way across to the other side of the, sea, other side of the Sea of Galilee, but just probably cutting off a corner going across um, the northeastern side there probably is where they were landing. Um, but anyways, this crowd follows them 
and gets there ahead of them. Now, what would your response be? You're tired. You're maybe a little grumpy if you're an apostle. You know, we know there's some of them are grumpy. We just read about it in the text. We say, yeah, they're not, you know, they, they're men, right? Um, and here you are, you're going to get a little time to rest, right? And then here's this crowd of people, you know. Ah, we were trying to get away from you guys, and here you are, right in our faces again, you know. How would you feel? I know how I'd feel. I'd be pretty put out, you know, like, oh man, these guys, they just, I mean, it's great that they're here and all, but we need to rest. That's not what Jesus feels, right? What does it say? When Jesus went ashore, he saw a large crowd, and he felt compassion for them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. So even though we don't hear about the disciples' you know, inner uh, thought life about what they think about this, these large crowds, we hear what Jesus feels. He feels compassion. Compassion toward a crowd that is mixed in their intentions, right? So some of the crowd was there, no doubt, because they wanted to hear his teaching. Some of the crowd was there, well, it tells us in the Gospels, because they had saw that Jesus had been healing folks, and so they're coming, you know, for for more healing, right? Maybe telling their friends to come or whatever. Some of them, the Gospel of John tells us eventually, uh, after the feeding of the multitude, are wanting to make Jesus a king. I'm imagining that was probably in the plan before he fed the multitude. I don't know, but there are mixed intentions here. Some have political purposes, wanting to attach those to Jesus. Some are after his teaching, some are after his healing. Some are maybe just drawn to the popularity. The, The scene is, oh, you know, Uh, these crowds are attaching themselves to Jesus. We want to see what's going on, right? I mean, that's just normal human uh, humanity. We want to, we're drawn to that. We're drawn to the crowds, right? Um, And what's going, we want to see what's going on for ourselves. What's the cause of the crowd? So there's a mixed multitude, but nonetheless, Jesus' response to the crowd at large is compassion for them. Because why? They were like sheep without a shepherd. Um, why was he compassionate? He was compassionate on them because they were desperate. They were lost. They were needy. They were lacking direction. They were confused. They needed guidance. They needed direction. And there was no one seemingly able to give them this. They were wandering. They were wayward. Uh, they had no one to care for them. They needed rescue, rescue, and maybe they didn't know that, but they did. And they needed a rescuer, and that is Jesus, right? He's the rescuer they needed. And whether or not they're aware of this, Jesus sees this in the crowd, and they're clamoring for various things, whatever their intentions are, their motivations for being there. He knows that they are seeking for something that they don't have yet, right? So he has compassion on them. And there's an Old Testament background to this statement. Um, I'm not going to go deep into this, but it's worth looking at in a couple of places. Um, this statement about the people uh, being as sheep without a shepherd. At many places in the Old Testament, the leaders of Israel are described as shepherds, of course, we, we know that. And as the Old Testament story unfolds, the leaders are spoken against because they take care of themselves and in, instead of taking care of the flock. They tend to themselves and not tend to the flock. Um, so the prophets, especially uh, the later prophets, uh, begin to prophesy that God would send a shepherd who would properly take care of his sheep and that even God himself will do the shepherding. Um, so let's just look at a couple of passages. The, the first passage that actually has the strongest verbal ties to our text in Mark comes out of uh, Numbers, chapter 27. And I don't have this on my page, so I'll flip to it. Numbers, chapter 27, and the context is that um, Moses is not wanting the people of Israel to be left leaderless, um, 
So this is what he says. Moses spoke to Yahweh saying, may Yahweh, the God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation who will go out and come in before them and who will lead them out and bring them in so that the congregation of Yahweh will not be like sheep which have no shepherd. So Yahweh said to Moses, take Joshua, the son of Nun, a man in whom is the spirit and lay your hand on him and have him stand before Eleazar the priest and before all the congregation and commission him in their sight. So clearly this is, this is very obvious to see, but Moses is setting up this whole paradigm of shepherd sheep that the leaders of Israel are not to regard themselves as um, just mere authority figures that have, uh, you know, it's not like they're the president or the king or something like that. They're shepherds. They're actually to have filial ties to the people. They're supposed to have a deep concern for the people themselves. It's, it's supposed to be a shepherd sheep thing, right? And, and there's supposed to be a, a tenderness to it. And so Moses has this concern that after he's gone, who's, who's going to take his place? And of course, in this pa- passage, um, God raises up Joshua to take Moses' place. And this is, to set, this is the paradigm for leadership in Israel, right? It's the paradigm. Now we know how this unfolds. The paradigm, the paradigm unravels as we go. It comes to a high watermark with David, who is himself a shepherd, right? Ironically, he, he is a shepherd. So he knows what it's like to shepherd actual sheep. Um, Moses was a shepherd, right, in the desert. But we come to you know, some of the later kings of Israel, and they just they don't get it, right? They begin to to take advantage of the people. They begin to lose the, this ability to oversee the people properly because they lose, they lose the ability to see God properly. Remember the kings of Israel, what are they supposed to do? They're supposed to make their own personal copy of, of, the, of, the, of the law of God, of the Torah, right? They're supposed to make it their own copy and study it and know it so that they can shepherd the people properly. Well, that obviously didn't happen. If it did happen, it didn't stick, obviously, because you read in the books of Chronicles and Kings how the people, tr- you know, the people were treated by the kings, and it was mostly very poorly. <laughs> the kings themselves are terrible examples of what it means to follow God, and then they lead the people in a wrong, uh, down a wrong path, of course. Uh, but it's not just the kings, it's also the priests as well. The priests were given a role to instruct the people uh, in the law, and they failed miserably as well. So let's go over, flip over to Ezekiel chapter 34. This is uh, the only other text I'll we'll read out of the Old Testament. But this is sort of the text to me, to me uh, that ties in with this passage that we're reading about sheep without a shepherd. Um, we'll read it in two different places. So, the beginning of the, of the chapter, Ezekiel 34, says this, Then the word of Yahweh came to me, saying, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to those shepherds, Thus says Yahweh God, Woe, shepherds of Israel, who have been feeding themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flock? You eat the fat and clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughter the fat sheep without feeding the flock. Those who are sickly, you have not strengthened. strengthened. The disease you have not healed. The broken you have not bound up. And he goes on and on. We can read on. Um, And so, reading on down in the passage, verse 11. For thus says Yahweh God, Behold, I myself will search out, excuse me, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out. As a shepherd cares for his herd in the day when he is among the sh- his scattered sheep, so I will care for my sheep and will deliver them from all the places to which they were scattered on a cloudy and gloomy day. 
etc. He goes on with this description of what he will do himself. So we have this abdication of the responsibility that the shepherds are supposed to have. They abdicate their responsibility. It's worse than even abdication. It's not just they fail to do it. They do the very opposite, right? They do care, but they care for themselves <laughs> instead of for the sheep, right? They turn their care in on themselves and neglect to the neglect of the people. Um, so God says, I will take care of them. If, if the shepherds are going to abdicate and, and, and turn away from their responsibility and focus on themselves, then I will be their shepherd. But it gets more rich than that. If we read on down in verse chapter 34, verse um, 23, it comes to a head. Then I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will feed them. He will feed them himself and be their shepherd. And I, Yahweh, will be their God. And my servant David will be prince among them. I, Yahweh, have spoken. Now that's an amazing text, right? So God is saying, I myself will shepherd them in the first place. But then he adds to that, he's going to bring this about through David. Well, we know what that means, right? It's not like he's going to bring David back from the dead. This is a messianic text. The greater David that's to come. David was always pointing ahead to a David to come, right? Someone who would outstrip David. And as great as David was, of course, David had, had failures and foibles too. We know that. But as great as David was, he wasn't the ultimate king of Israel. Um, there wasn't a more ultimate king coming. One who would shepherd properly and feed the people with what was actually needed. Um, and Yahweh is going to be their God and my servant David will be prince among them. So this, this is the background for our text over in, in Mark, flipping back to Mark 6, that all of this is transpiring in front of Jesus, and he knows his task. Jesus knows his purpose, that he came in th into the world not to serve himself, right? He didn't come to serve himself. He came to be a servant, right? To give his life as a ransom for many, ultimately. But the serving starts with a recognition that these people are sheep, and he is the shepherd. He is the only one who can shepherd them properly and give them what they need. So he, re he recognizes this and, <clears throat> excuse me, has compassion on them. Um, flip over here. So following up on the statement that he had compassion on them and he sees them as sheep without a shepherd, what did he begin to do? Well, he began to teach them many things. So it's, it's easy to think, okay, what do these people need? They're kind of, you know, motley crew of people. Well, they need to be fed, right? Well, ultimately he does feed them. But the priority isn't in that order, is it? The priority is what they need, their, their, their plight, where they, the plight they have that Jesus sees, you know, pours out compassion on them because of their situation, the plight they have. What they need is, what they need is the word of God. What they need is to be taught, to be instructed, right? And this is what Jesus does. Um, again, Mark doesn't include very much of Jesus' actual preaching and teaching, but we know that Jesus' main topic was to repent and believe the good news. The good news of what? Of the kingdom. What does that mean? It's God's saving rule and reign in the person of Jesus. The promised deliverer had come. All the prophets are anticipating this deliverer who would come and save his people from their sin, save God's people from their sins ultimately. And this savior had come uh, to rescue his people from God's wrath so that they ha could have forgiveness and be put right with God. This is the message of the kingdom, that the kingdom is here in the person of Jesus, the son of God. And uh, so this is what Jesus is teaching them. It doesn't say this in the text in Mark, but I think in Luke it says that he taught them about the kingdom. Uh, it adds that to the, to the text. But um, 
as he's teaching them these things and instructing them, the disciples are realizing something. We have a problem. It's already quite late. <laughs> and, the, and, and his disciples come to him and say, this place is desolate. It's already quite late. Send them away so that they may go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. Um, as Jesus continued to teach the the people there, the disciples realize, hey, we have a problem here. <laughs> the problem is, it's getting to be dinner time, and we have a lot of people here. A lot of people. At least 5,000 men, and it's more than that. We'll talk about that in a second. Uh, but uh, the disciples come up with a practical solution. They say, okay, well, we have a solution. Jesus, um, all these people, you can just send them into the surrounding countryside and villages. They can go, you know, buy themselves something to eat, right? Sounds practical enough. Now, we don't know exactly where this was all taking place, but the surrounding countryside and villages could have been as much as three or four miles away by some estimations. We know that they're in a desolate place on the one hand, but still close enough to villages to where they could go there, but probably not so close that it would have been an easy journey, you know, especially when you're already famished and really hungry. So, so this, this is the suggestion they come up with. Jesus finds their answer unacceptable, <laughs> but he answered them, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and spend 200 denarii on bread and give them something to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go look. And when they found out, they said, Five and two fish. So this is kind of a surprising answer, isn't it? When Jesus says, You give them something to eat. What does he mean by that? Isn't that kind of, I mean, what do we do with that? What does that mean? Does he really mean they're to go and, you know, kind of rifle through their belongings and pick out coins or whatever? And, oh, do we have... Do we have the money? Do we have enough 200 denarii to provide food? 200 denarii is about eight months, approximately eight months wages for one worker. This is a lot of money um, that they're estimating. This is an estimate, of course, that the disciples make, but it might have even been under what was needed. But nonetheless, they realize, hey, there's a lot of money needed to provide food for these people. Is Jesus really suggesting that? No, that's, that's not the point. <laughs> um, the point seems to be, um, well, John gives us a little more information, actually, that's helpful. Mark doesn't comment anymore on this, but this is the way it's reported in John. John 6, verses 5 and 6. Uh, Therefore Jesus, lifting up his eyes and seeing that a large crowd was coming to him, said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread, so that these may eat? This, he's, this he was saying to test him, for he himself knew what he was intending to do. So John plainly tells us that this was a test when Jesus says to them, to you know, provide for these people. You, know, you provide something to eat for them to eat. This was a test. A test of what? A test of their faith, right? He's testing their faith to see, well, how are you going to respond? Are you beginning to see, get any insight into who I am and what I can do? Um, and unfortunately, they miserably fail the test. <laughs> they don't seem to understand. Um, some commentators try to say, well, it's, Jesus is, at, is sort of implying that they're to work a miracle and do this. And on the one hand, I can see, okay, yeah, that kind of makes sense, of course, because he tells them to, to take care of the need. But all the way through uh, the Gospels, Jesus is the one who does these nature miracles. It's not the, the disciples. Of course, they do miracles. We know that, casting out demons and healing the sick with the anointing of oil. But these major nature miracles, the apostles don't do that. This is, this, the background to this is out of the Old Testament, right? God is the one who provide, who is the creator, the great creator, and provides for his creation and brings something out of nothing. This is the work that God does. So I don't think the point is he's expecting the disciples, to, the apostles, to do these mighty miracles and, miracles and provide food. 
The point seems to be he's kind of backing them into a corner and seeing, will they then see, yeah, this is a real problem. Jesus, what are you going to do? You know, turn it back on Jesus. That's what they should have done, right? They should have had faith in seeing, hey, we don't know what to do about this situation, but you do, Jesus. I mean, we've seen what you've done so far. You can take care of this. It's just human nature, isn't it? Sinful human nature that we act this way, you know? God has to do this to us. He has to back us into a corner, a corner sometimes, put, it at, put us at our lowest where we kind of exhaust all our resources and we think through things as much as we can till we come to the end of our rope and we realize we don't really know what to do or have a solution, so then we turn to God. <laughs> um, that's just the way sinful humans do, and this is kind of how it worked out in this, this text, except for the fact that they don't even turn to him. Jesus just takes the uh, initiative and says, how many loaves do you have? Go look. And when they found out, they said five and two fish. Um, so Jesus uh, asked them to uh, find out what they do have instead of focusing on what they, d- what they don't have. The answer is not very much, just five measly loaves, two fish. This is not too little for Jesus to work with, even though it seems like nothing in the eyes of the disciples. They're probably bringing this to Jesus saying, all right, this is still like, we have nothing. We came up short, you know. They, they have something they're presenting to Jesus, but it's basically in their minds nothing, you know. Because they know this little paltry amount of food is not going to provide anything for this vast crowd of people, right? Well, Jesus takes it, and he commanded them all to sit down by groups on the green grass. They sat down in, group, sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties, and he took the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up to heaven, he blessed and broke the loaves, and he kept giving them, kept giving them, it says, to the disciples to set before them. And he divided up the two fish among them all. These three little verses, 39 through 41, contain one of the mightiest miracles Jesus ever performed. We talked about how this is the only one recorded in all the Gospels. Um, That fact alone should tell us this is something especially significant. And there are a number of reasons it's, it's, it's significant, but one of them we've already talked about briefly this is a nature miracle. God alone is in control of nature and provides food for his creatures. You, you read in Psalm 104, and it's just on and on about how God provides, not just for human beings, but especially for you know, the, the young lions. They roar, and he provides food for them. And on and on it goes, and just giving this very detailed and poetic description of how God attends to these creatures that are out of our sight, right? We think that, oh, you know, nature, we're just so conditioned by evolutionary thought and naturalism to think the world just goes on as it does, right? But that's not the way the scriptures puts things, right? The world is attended to in immaculate detail by God. He provides intimately for these animals and for these creatures, right? He is the one who does these things. God is, in, is the sovereign over the natural world. Um, and even for those who don't bow the knee to him, uh, human beings who don't bow the knee to him, still, as Jesus says, he pours out, you know, God provides rain on the just and the unjust, right? He doesn't withhold. It's not like back in the Exodus where in the land of Goshen, they were fine and then there was darkness in the land of Egypt, you know? He doesn't make that distinction. There's not a, a dark stormy cloud going over the heads of, of unbelievers, whereas we as saints are, are fine and dandy. You know, that's not how it works. We know this. God takes care of everybody because he has a, a love for this world that he made and attends to its needs. Um, And that in part is what lends us, that in part is what drives us to more accountability to God, right? Do you remember in Acts 14, Paul and Barnabas come to the people there and uh, the people, I can't remember what city it was, was it Lystra, I can't recall, but they um, begin, the people there begin to worship Paul and Barnabas as gods. And this is what, uh, let me find my text page here. 
This is the way it goes down. Men, why are you doing these things? Paul says to these folks who are trying to worship Paul and Barnabas as gods. We are also men of the same nature as you and preach the gospel to you that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the, the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In the generations gone by, he permitted all the nations to go their own way. And yet he did not leave himself without witness and that he did good and gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. So the way Paul thinks of God's superintendence of the natural world is that God is doing good to everyone, right? He's giving rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. So every unbeliever out there is getting goodness constantly poured on their head from God every single day, <laughs> every day, right? And it's because of this goodness of God that it's, it's, it's a witness, Paul says. He has not left, left himself without witness, that unbelievers are supposed to look at their state and realize that they're being attended to. They're supposed to see that the orderliness of the natural world, the rains that come, the sun that shines, the moon that shines to give light at night, and all these things, and see, yeah, God is doing this. God is taking care of me every day. Therefore, I owe God everything, right? That's the way it's supposed to go. Um, so the fact that Jesus, coming back to our text, is doing this nature miracle is call, calling up big questions about who is this guy that has this authority uh, and this, uh, this, this ability to do these things that, that God does. And, and you know, you can think about nature, other miracles that are similar in the Old Testament. For example, Elisha at one point in 2 Kings 4, I think, um, is given um, 20 loaves of bread and God causes them to be multiplied to feed 100 people. So someone might say, well, Jesus is just, he's just... It's the same as Elisha. You know, what's the difference? I mean, he's just on par with Elisha. Well, I think this text is meant to conjure up those types of things, of course. Conjure up Moses, conjure up Elijah. You know, you're supposed to have those things in your head, but it's not the same thing. Elisha and Elijah did these things always pointing to God as the source, never taking credit themselves. Jesus does exactly the opposite all the time. He always points to himself and lets it lie, doesn't he? And he lets it just, whatever controversy comes out of that, that's just how the chips fall, right? He does the exact opposite. Furthermore, Jesus himself, you know, it's, it's not like God is just, you know, when there's bread coming in the wilderness here, as, as it were, this is a desolate place. I'm sure the people thought about manna, you know, in the wilderness, God gives manna. Well, it's not like God is just doing the exact same thing again. That's not how it works. In the Old Testament, there are prophecies that there's going to be another, a new exodus that God's going to do, where he's going to gather in Israel and the nations as well to be a part of his people. And it's not that God's going to do just the same thing again. It's going to be a new thing, but it's going to have ties in with the old thing that he's done. The great, you know, parting of the sea, walking through on dry land, um, leading the people through the wilderness to the promised land. This becomes a, a paradigm, again, for what God is going to do. But it's the scaffolding that he's building on. It's not the exact same thing. So when Jesus comes and he feeds the people as God fed Israel with manna from heaven in the wilderness, it's not meant to say, oh yeah, he's just another Moses, or oh yeah, he's just another Elisha. It's not supposed to be, that, that's not the point. The point is, this is one greater than Moses. This is one greater than Elisha. This is one who does things on his own authority and initiative for different purposes to point us toward the greatness of this kingdom that's coming, right? So there are different things that get conjured up in this, this uh, particular miracle 
uh, God's control of nature and the authority that Jesus shares with God to do this this miracle, this great miracle over nature, the provision of food in the wilderness. Um, Now, lest you think I'm making that up, I think we all know that in John's gospel, um, Jesus does the same, you know, the same thing is recorded. He feeds the multitude. And then there's this run-in that Jesus has with the Jews, where there's this, there's this extended, you could call it a dialogue, it's more of a monologue, Jesus has a lot more to say in the, in, the, in the text, where Jesus has to correct their misunderstanding of this whole bread thing. You know, there's this crowd of people who are following after Jesus and they think, oh yeah, I mean, this guy, he's great, he's, he's making, he's doing this miracle of, of creating bread from nothing, so let's go see what he's going to do next, right? And so they're following after him, and Jesus I'll just read very quickly the beginning of this, uh, John chapter 6. Jesus tells them very plainly (laughs) uh, what their intentions are. He knows their hearts. He tells them, truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him the Father God has set his seal. Then he goes on to say, therefore they said to him, or the text goes on to say, therefore they said to him, what shall we do so that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God that you believe in him who he has sent, whom he, I'm sorry, in him whom he has, yeah, him whom he has sent. So again, Jesus is what? He's content with everything pointing to him. It's not about the bread, it's about him. You know, he's having to constantly get people away from just the mere surface level view of things. Jesus calls this a sign. All right, this is a sign. What, is it, what does that mean? What is a sign? Well, a sign signifies something. It points to something. And this is the il- illustration I gave to the guys this morning at Miracle Hill. If you're going down the road, you see a stop sign. We know what that means. We know just by the very shape of it, the color, uh, of course, the word, the word stop on it. We know this. We're conditioned to know what that means. Does that, that signifies something. That means stop your vehicle here, right? Uh, but if you're in another country and you don't know what shape sign they use for stop, you don't know how the word stop is, is what, what that word is in that language, you don't know the, the color of the sign used, you might see the sign going down the road, but you fly right past it, right? Well, that's what these people were doing, these Jews. They were seeing something. They saw Jesus did this mighty work, this mighty miracle, but they just saw a sign. They didn't see the sign. You know? they, just, they just saw the surface level thing. They didn't have any insight into what it meant. You know? They didn't know they should have, what they should have done with it. All right? And Jesus tells them what they should do. That this sign is pointing to something. It's pointing to the fact that he is the true bread that comes down from heaven. Jesus said to them, this is verse 35 of John 6, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, yet you do not believe, etc. Right before this, there's a discussion of uh, the fathers eating, eating the manna in the wilderness and so forth. And what the Jews try to do is they try to say, look, this manna, oh yeah, Moses gave us this manna. And Jesus says, Mm-mm, it wasn't Moses, it was my father who gave you this bread from heaven, right? So the parallel is drawn not between necessarily uh, Jesus and Moses, it's, it's that Jesus, the parallels are between Jesus and the Father. The Father is one who, the one who gives the manna, right? And this same Father is the one who sends the Son down from heaven to give his life for the world, you know, to give his flesh for the life of the world. So Jesus is constantly having to correct these people because they are so focused on the, the surface level physical 
you know, aspect of things and don't have insight into what's going on here. Sadly, the disciples have the same problem. Later on in the book of Mark in, in chapter eight, after the feeding of the 4,000, the disciples are in the boat and they're, they didn't pack bread. And, and so they're like, oh, we don't have enough bread. What are we going to do? And Jesus says, you know, did you, do you, are you hardened in heart? Do you have ears to hear and eyes to see? Do you not understand? You know, how many baskets were gathered up after the feeding of the 5,000? Then the feeding of the 4,000. Do you not understand who is with you and the power that is here with you now? They don't get it. They don't get it, right? But Jesus is so gracious. It's so amazing to see that these people who don't get it are eventually the apostles that bring the gospel to the nations, right? That God uses them in this way. Because we're the same way. We don't get it, you know? And we, we fade kind of in and out of getting it and not getting it. I mean, is, isn't that the Christian life? We, we see something clearly for a while, and some things God makes, makes stick forever, but sometimes it's like they start to fade a little bit. You know, we have to come back. Well, I need to see that again, God. That's the way we are. You know, we're humans, and we're frail, and, and Jesus is so patient with them and so patient with us. Um, so, <clears throat> excuse me. The last part of this, this text in Mark it says they all ate and were satisfied, and they picked up 12 full baskets of the broken pieces and also of the fish. There were 5,000 men who ate the loaves. Um, in three ways, the text stresses the, stresses the greatness of this miracle. First of all, everyone received food and was completely full, which is probably a foreign concept to most of them, at least on a daily basis, to be completely full. I mean, food was not for enjoyment primarily. I mean, it was for enjoyment, of course, but not primarily. That wasn't the primary orientation people had toward food in the ancient world. Food is fuel, right? Food is fuel. You eat because you want to live. So it would have been a foreign thing for uh, most of these people who were probably living hand to mouth to sit there and feel full. Ah, I'm totally sated. You know, I've totally, totally got my fill of food because they didn't eat to feel full. They ate to have enough to go on to the next meal. Um, so there's that. Uh, then there was, a, there was a surplus of bread. There were leftovers, more than enough to eat. Jesus wasn't just barely meeting the need, but he was going above and beyond. And this is, I think, part of what, when Jesus was addressing the disciples in the boat, they're supposed to think back and think, yeah, I mean, look at this power I've extended toward you. I didn't just barely meet the need that was there with these feedings. I went over and above. There was stuff left over. And you're here arguing about if we are worried about bread, you know? Oh, we didn't pack enough bread. Misunderstanding Jesus. What are you saying? Thinks he's talking about other stuff than he, yeah, physical bread, and he's not. Um, and the number of people fed was, of course, tremendous. 5,000 men doesn't mean 5,000 people. Uh, it's 5,000 males that Mark is referring to. There, there are two different words here. Anthropos, he could have used, which is just, would be like men in general, you know, men and women. So we would say, use the word men the way that people don't want us to use it anymore, but including men and women. Uh, but here he uses a different word, which just means males. And Matthew makes this very clear that it's not just males, there were women and children as well. So we're talking about upwards of what at least probably 10,000 people minimally, but probably way, way beyond that. It's sort of a hard figure to get around your head. Um, so the, the, the nature of the miracle is that it's a great miracle. It's great in scope, right? And in outcome. And uh, all the people sat there satisfied. And I just thought, you know, I don't know if, there's, if this is intended in the text or not, probably, but, you know, satisfaction is, is something that everybody wants and needs, but you can't get it. <laughs> you know, as a Rolling Stone said, you can't get no satisfaction, right? It's a hard thing to come by, right? 
And people resonate with that because we're all seeking satisfaction in this world. That's just the way it is. We want to be satisfied. And we're all searching. And this is, this is coming back to where, you know, Jesus' compassion on the people. He sees them searching. They're there, you know. They're, they're there searching for something. But they're, they're going about it the wrong way. They don't even know what they're looking for, really. And Jesus is there as the solution to this. So I know most of us here uh, have come to see that Jesus satisfies, right? That you can come to this Christ without cost and buy from him, and he will give you everything you need freely, right? Freely. But I think some of you, and I don't know, again, I don't know people's hearts. Some of you are holding out on Jesus. You think you're going to find a better offer somewhere else, you know? You're thinking, yeah, okay, all right, Jesus, yes, he's, that's great, but you're kind of chasing the world. You're thinking you're going to find satisfaction in the world, and it's a tempting thing, isn't it? Because the world does look good a lot of times, you know, in our, in our weaker moments. We, we, we sense that, that pull that the world still has on our hearts, right? But it's always a dead end, right? It's always, Proverbs talks about, you know, lady wisdom and, and, and lady folly. And lady's, lady folly's house leads down to the chambers of what? Death. Death. It's always enticing when the, the smorgasbord is spread, right? The, the, the festal board is there. There's all these dainty things that are enticing. But it leads to death. It's death. It's a lure. Um, so if any of you don't know the Lord, don't play the game that you're going to find satisfaction outside of the Lord Jesus. You're not going to find satisfaction outside of the Lord Jesus. He's the only one who can actually satisfy our hearts. It's true. It's not just a cliche statement because he's our maker and he knows what we need. He knows uh, absolutely what satisfies us. Um, one more thing, just one more point of application because we're running out of time. Um, Jesus, uh, Jesus cares about certainly our spiritual and physical needs, but as I've already kind of made the point, our spiritual needs are more important. So, um, you know, sometimes uh, you look at folks and, well, at Miracle Hill, you know, you look at these folks and you think, gosh, I mean, they're so, they're so down. I mean, they're, <laughs> they're hungry. Well, if they're there, they're not hungry, hopefully, but they've been on the streets, they're hungry, they're, you know, they're maybe without proper clothing or whatever, they're cold and and all this stuff. Even where I work, behind the Cascades, there's a whole tent, uh, not tent, a whole, uh, what am I trying to say? Uh, I guess you'd say, uh, I don't know, like a, a, almost a permanent residence of homeless people back there. I don't know. I haven't been back there, but I know that behind my work, there's a bunch of homeless people living in the woods. And I think, you know, these people have real needs, and, and I would like to do something to meet their needs, and that's real, but, and Jesus, Jesus cares about those things. He does feed the 5,000 after all, right? He cares about physical needs. But the priority, priority is always on the spiritual. Uh, it's always the first, first thing, right? Because there's a death worse than death, right? Revelation talks about the second death. To, to go hungry and even to the point of starvation and death is not the worst thing that can happen to a person. The worst thing that can happen is to go into the lake of fire, the second death, Right? And there's a life that's greater than life. To just be satisfied with things on the level of just sustenance and you carry on in this world is not eternal life. Jesus is coming to offer something more. And the whole reason we have food at all is to point toward, to act as this metaphor for Jesus himself, right? God gave us food so that we can appreciate the satisfaction, that, the satisfaction and the life that comes to us through the death of Christ. Food gives us life. 
Jesus is the bread that comes down from heaven. His flesh is given for the life of the world. His flesh being given is his death, right? He has to die just as animals and plants have to die for us to be sustained. Jesus had to die, go to the cross so that we can have life and eternal life, in fact. Um, so um, I just, I don't know what else to say about that other than just to say, I don't want to lose sight of either one of those things, that God does want us to do good deeds to meet the needs of the saints and others, but just to have that proper orientation, right? Always toward eternity, always to meet people's needs, yes, but see, see need as spiritual primary and physical secondary, right? They're not, they're not opposed necessarily in that we do one to the neglect of the other, right? But spiritual is always paramount, right? Always paramount. So uh, when, we, when you interact with, with folks at Miracle Hill, whether it's the Renewal Center or, um, or the men downtown uh, in the rescue mission, the thing that they need most of all is to be taught of God, to come into a right understanding of who they are and that they need Christ and we need Christ daily. So why don't we pray and uh, wrap it up there. Lord God, uh, thank you for your scriptures again and your that your word teaches us about the Christ, or we would be in the dark um, about what it takes to know you and come to right relationship and fellowship with you if you hadn't spoken to us and revealed your son in us, each individually, Lord, and certainly in your word generally as it goes out to people. Um, Lord, I pray that you would help us to see, um, constantly see, be seeing the glory of, of Christ as we read your word. Um, don't let him grow small in our hearts, Lord. Let us see that he is a great Savior, and that, uh, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, the eternal Son of God, and that uh, you are for us, Father, and not against us in this world, that uh, though things are difficult, and will certainly get more difficult in days to come, uh, Lord, you will never leave us or forsake us. You will always be our good shepherd, and you will ultimately lead us to springs of living water. Um, that is your promise to us, and we pray that you would just um, burn that, those images into our mind so that we uh, put our trust in you and not in ourselves or in men. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.